The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. My name is Steve Innes, and it's a pleasure to be here with so many friends and close readers of Derek Mann's work. I want to thank Nikki Green and the entire organizing committee for bringing us together to celebrate Derek's lasting contribution to Irish poetry. As we know, Derek uh, would have been 81 this month, and I imagine that may have been a shocking circumstance for one who compulsively contemplated and imaginatively reenacted his own end. As Hugh Houghton remind us, reminded us in a reading of that early Trinity poem, None the Worse. To cite just another example of that theme, also from this period, time is running out fast. I shall soon be drowned, Derek Mann wrote a few months later in Brahms' trio. The imagined end um, was often death by drowning, like that of his close friend, J.G. Farrell. And as we know, man's attraction to the sea was a lifelong one. The sea's pull on him was partly an acknowledgement of his family's own connection to Belfast shipbuilding industry, and partly a romantic attraction to the mutability of life itself. Whatever its first source, the sea was a potent image in Derek Mann's work, and Lucy Collins is particularly well suited to explore what she calls these intertidal zones of his work. It does not require a great imaginative leap to move from the personal dramas of the sea that his early poems enact to the global ecological crisis that he takes as his subject in the late poems. Lucy Collins is well known to this group. She's associate professor of modern poetry and associate dean of graduate studies at University College Dublin. She's a graduate of Trinity College and she received a master's of research in the history of the book at the University of London before returning to Trinity to take her PhD. She's editor of Aberration in Modern Poetry, editor of Poetry by Women in Ireland, a critical anthology, and most relevant to today's topic, co-editor with Andrew Carpenter of The Irish Poet in the Natural World, an anthology of verse in English from the Tudors to the Romantics. More recently, in 2015, she published Contemporary Irish Women Poets, Memory and Estrangement, which explores the function of memory, both individual and collective, in the work of some of our finest contemporary Irish women poets. Her interest in Derek Mann's poetry goes back to her own graduate studies here at Trinity. And this evening's keynote lecture might be said to have begun with an Irish University Review article on a disused shed in County Wexford, Wexford which she published in 2009. This evening's lecture is also an extension of her more recent work on islands and marine environments in Irish poetry. She will be speaking to us on the sea in Derek Mann's work, its relationship to northern places and identities, and to broader cycles of annihilation and regeneration. Please join me in welcoming Lucy Collins. Thanks for that introduction, Steve. Um, I suppose I'm coming at this at this brief, if you like, uh, which I was very um, delighted to receive um, and very honoured um, to be asked to give this talk. Uh, I wanted to combine some of my interest in the sea in Mahan's work as it's, we can map it or we can understand it across um, the full span of his career. Um, with some reflections on the role of the sea and the role of coastal spaces in particular in contemporary Irish poets of younger generations. This is obviously a really vast uh, field. 
Um, but I was hoping by touching on some of those texts by younger poets to, in a sense, situate these poems in relation to one another, not with any sort of programmatic sense of influence, but rather a, a sense of shared engagement with particular representations and spaces that are sometimes geographical uh, and coastal and sometimes poetic. So that's um, where I'm coming from in this uh, paper. So I wanted to begin with the poem Ebb Tide. The riddles of the sand, a field of rack and shifting single left by the ebb tide, new dispositions every time, avoid consistency, and when the sea draws back, everything, even our confidence, has died in an archaic stench of primal mud. Ah, yes, but this is where new life begins, that intertidal zone where the sun warms vast cloud reflections on a moist expanse beneath the sky, a place of origins, a fertile space for the evolving forms like us, with our own conscious ignorance. Now in this poem, which is a late poem as you'll all know, we see um, this sense of withdrawal very prominently, though with a kind of tidal inevitability, we also see it as a poem of return, where the primal mud uh, exposed by the receding tide is both a space of origins and of evolving forms, which in turn will become part of that marine environment. This intertidal zone, and obviously I borrowed that phrase from my own title, and, and its relationship to the larger body of water marks man's increasing scrutiny of the sea's movement and of the, the signs it leaves on the shore. In this poem, what is read in Joycean fashion in the changing patterns of seaweed and the shifting sing, sifting shingle um, that the retreating tide reshapes. The rhythm of the poem is from reluctant humility to cautious hope. Confidence is the last thing to die and ignorance the first to be revived. These dynamic forms are indicative of man's understanding of the chore as a space of provisional positions, even when those positions are strongly articulated. And this goes back to our conversation earlier about um, where man's convictions lie in relation to eco-critical um, subjects. In this respect, I think he shares uh, the view of John Gillis, who has characterized the shore and not as an edge of somewhere else, as he says, but an entity in itself where two ecosystems meet and enrich one another. So this poem, Ebb Tide, um, can be seen as a space that facilitates change. So the space of the poem, as well as the, as the space of the shore, there is new life, but it has the same limitations and the same willed ignorance as the old. These evolving forms may be poetic too, but the modest ebb and flow of these two six-line stanzas in half rhyme expresses the shifting mood of Mahan's late work directly, its pessimism in the face of global warming, its turning for consolation to familiar scenes and memories, and in particular to ideas of origin. It doesn't then avoid consistency. The sea is a continuous image throughout man's work and is central to his increasing concern with environmental issues that has already been discussed today. But the sea also retains its vital ties to the energies of thought and creation. And though themes, images, and even phrases uh, recur in his work, the continual revision of poems means not only that the individual text is mutable, but that the relationship among man's texts is constantly changing. And one thing we've remarked before, I think, is the way in which in the poems, the, the latest volume, and indeed the previous uh, volumes, um, the poems are not arranged by collection. So you have that sense of a large body of work where the, the sort of distinguishing 
um, subsections, if you like, have been removed. And in many ways, I'd like to see that as a kind of analogy for the sea in terms of that sense of a large body, but a dynamic body uh, and a, a, a dynamic body that is textual and uh, natural in the sense. The space of the shoreline troubles any sense of fixed or stable identity and alters our understanding of national boundaries, reconfiguring narrow definitions of cultural identity and reframing memory and history. These spaces then allow the poet to think about relationships, bonds of love and friendship, but also the relationship between self and community, between here and elsewhere. The sea at once invokes and challenges our sense-making capacity, since we acknowledge both its constancy and its ever-changing character. Stability and flux are necessarily related and are expressed at the coastline where tidal patterns continually alter the boundary between earth and ocean. The shore has a dual nature, these are the words of Rachel Carson, changing with the swing of tides, belonging now to the land, now to the sea. The ocean can also be understood in the words of William Bauhauer as a space of dispersion, conjunction, distribution, contingency, heterogeneity, and of intersecting and stratified lines and images. And it's this last phrase I particularly wanted to think about and um, because it can be used to reflect upon the many textual intersections across Mahan's work, especially in respect to the representation of water. But it also helps us to think about the temporal implications of this layering of imagery, the way in which Mahan's work always seems conscious of the passage of time, turning to the lived past or projecting a cosmic measurement of human experience. Time and tide are conventionally linked, uh, both by the Earth's magnetic fields and by the vast oceans separating land masses. Furthermore, as Margaret Cohen has argued, maritime developments have their own timelines. So those are not, as she argues, um, this identical to the timelines of, of Western modernity. The sense in which the sea is both linked to, yet separate from terrestrial time zones, confirms, confirms its role as a nexus of distinct cultures with unique capacity to express reciprocity and tension between them. Since people, goods and ideas are endlessly in motion on its surface, the sea is a place where both oppression and empowerment can be enacted. And this facet I think becomes um, particularly significant in Mahan's later work. Many of the established characteristics of Mahan's work have proved influential for the generation of poets that followed him. Physical displacement, ironic self-reflection, and a combination of formal precision with the rhythms of direct speech all identify Mahan as an inheritor of modernism, more informed by European and American precursors, uh, some of which we've heard about earlier, uh, than by earlier Irish poets. Mann's cosmopolitanism is a key element. In many ways, I think it's his discomfort with the category of the Irish poet that speaks most to the younger generation. I think his type of poem, said Justin Quinn, is the one we all began to try and write. This process is not only fraught with risks, as David Wheatley has more recently um, acknowledged, but it's also temporally complex. Mahan's own writing would continue to evolve as members of the younger generation develop their own styles and concerns. So the poems I'm, I'm going to touch on today that engage with literal spaces and, and maritime environments are in constantly changing relation to one another. And in this relationship, they maintain different levels of um, closeness and distance. So those two elements, of course, are really important, I think, in Mann's work for a whole variety um, of reasons. So Mann turns continually to the sea and to coastal spaces as ways of exploring the tensions between chaos and order, of juxtaposing what is vast and unknowable with the precision of form. Early on in his writing career, these spaces offer a means to reflect on Northern identity in ways that move beyond the specifics of politics. 
But later on, when environmental issues become central to his work, the sea allows the networks of connection to extend so that ideas of our human relationship to place and environment can invoke a wider political realm. So from the earliest moments in man's career, the juxtaposition of chaos and order, and again, this is a point that has been better made by other critics, um, has been figured in relation to place. So situating poems at moments of both seasonal and personal change, we read the overlapping conditions of these texts and the volatility of their weather as indicative of the challenging of sorry of the challenge of forging order from chaos. Spring in Belfast, which is um, the opening poem of the, the new volume, the poems, uh, but also similarly in, in the earlier new collected poems, uses a walk in a break between rain as a moment of reflection on the speaker's relationship to self and community. The tide of sunlight between shower and shower is typical of the importance of water in this early work and the rhythms of weather patterns and tidal shifts. And those two are very often connected. So those um, patterns of weather and, and sea are intimately tied. The role of liminality in Mahan's poetry is well rehearsed, but the temporal shifts that result are significant, both personally and aesthetically. So um, I want to turn first, uh, not to be um, taking Elaine's line um, to uh, literally, I suppose, but I'm returning to some very familiar poems at the start of this talk and, and later uh, we'll move towards some um, of the more recent material. So I want to turn to Afterlives, which is, of course, um, a very familiar poem um, by Mahan. And I want to look at two particular points in the poem. And these are the beginnings of um, part one and part two. Because in this poem, the journey by sea is central to the juxtaposition of the former centre of empire, so the rain-fresh London, where the speaker wakens to the soft roar of the world, and then moves to the apparent margin, imaginatively first, um, to Belfast, disfigured by five years of war. This spatial distinction is also a temporal one, from a distance, violence can be textually confined to the back streets or the dark places, which are already imagined in the past, supposing the power of good to have prevailed. This proleptic assertion is checked in the second half of the poem, in which the journey by sea emphasize, emphasizes the slow passage of time. I am going home by sea for the first time in years. Somebody thumbs a guitar on the dark deck while a gull dreams at the masthead. The moon-splashed waves exult. So the long hiatus between visits, the formless music and the motionless gull, together with the careful, very precise management of vowel sounds um, in this part of the poem, slow down the pace of the poem. At dawn, the ship backs into its moorings, trembling and shuddering, marking the anxieties of the speaker's arrival. A fine rain, which is like the, the veils of rain through which Louis Magnus once viewed Dublin, does nothing to soften the transformation of the city through violence. Only the topography remains unchanged. The act of endurance, which man speculates as necessary to feelings of belonging, is also about the passage of time and the transformation that occurs through continuity rather than change. Even alterations in form suggest not an escape, but an intensified engagement with the actual. I believe poetry prevails as a point of departure, not from reality, but to reality, says Mahan. Be it epic or lyric, rock or rap, Rhyme is the pre-linguistic drumbeat, a distant echo in the depths. The return to Northern Ireland exposes man to the realities of violence from which he's kept his distance. Yet he chooses to register the discomfort of the experience by moving towards the edge, reframing the act of reflection by looking outwards rather than inwards. This transposition both facilitates and postpones the encounter with the self. As Colette Bryce demonstrates in the opening of her poem, Finisterre. 
nothing to do in this place but turn and return or stop and look out into nothing, ocean and sky in a blue confusion, the curved shriek of a gull. It's later in this poem by Bryce when the thin figure lowers, quote, lines and basket traps to the depths that the contracting heart or the state of being alone is broached. By contrast, Mann's sea-facing poems from this period reflect more directly on the constructions of community, how the we is formed and conceived. In North Wind, Port Rush, which is later just North Wind, the shifting boundaries of earth and sea become important, as does the projection of the sea's instabilities onto the land. Minds and bodies are shaped by the relentless nature of the onshore wind and by a darkness that is both actual and symbolic. It whistles off the stars and the existential stark face of the cosmic dark. Situating this experience in deep time, which is interesting given the significance of that kind of thinking for later ecological um, work. Here, man takes a long view of these conditions that allows only temporary respite in the brief flare of sunlight and the stillness that accompanies it. Even the sea is scarred by these conditions. Man speculates on the perspective of visitors leaving by boat, perhaps never to return. And this emphasizes the island experience as one that might be cut off from the world. Here the untimely is in its way timely. Even the delayed newspapers are not unexpected. The potential to begin again, the belief that the day that follows the storm is the first day, has a broader resonance in the context of the history of these islands. As Nicholas Allen points out in his recent book on Irish coastal literatures, there is intimacy between the literary idea of the island and of self-governance, which takes particular charge in cultures that have experienced the long receding wave of empire as violence, partition, and the fragmentation of place as a subject of narrative. Island life may itself be linked to states of conflict and violence, as Mahan's Rathlin indicates. Rathlin Island uh, lives, lies off the coast of Antrim, about 25 um, kilometres from the southernmost part of the Scottish Isles. And Mahan's poem specifically invokes the killing on the island in the 16th century of the women and children of the clan Macdonald. The island was a site of a number of massacres and the echoic effect of the opening line of the first and third stanzas, a long time since the last scream cut short and a long time since the unspeakable violence emphasizes the continuing resonance of historical acts. The poem is framed by arrival and departure and this is another very common um, structure in Mahan's work. And this is signaled by the sound of the outboard motor and indicates the significance of what precedes and follows the journey. A long time since the last scream cut short, then an unnatural silence, and then a natural silence, slowly broken by the shearwater, by the sporadic conversation of crickets, the bleak reminder of a metaphysical wind. Ages of this, till the report of an outboard motor at the pier shatters the dream time, and we land as if we were the first visitors here. Again, Mahan's long view of time, expressed directly there in the ages of this phrase, is accompanied by a perspective displaced from the experiencing individual. Mahan's metaphysical wind is a recurring aspect of his poetic weather, signaling the larger questions of man's decision to dwell in places of physical and emotional challenge. By choosing to begin, to begin the poem in the way he does, man places the existential question first, paving the way for a consideration of violence that is conceptual rather than particular. The capacity of nature to persist oblivious to human intention is another concern of man's, and here is set against the environment of Belfast, where human violence intrudes in shared spaces. 
speech and silence create an important dynamic in this poem, as they do in so many poems by Mahan. Its understated quality, though, is implicitly concerned with ongoing states of reflection that don't lead to definitive statements. This poem is full of the vocabulary of sound, scream, silence, conversation, report, chatter, statement. But interestingly, Mahan doesn't overemphasize sound patterns within the poem itself. Both alliteration and assonance are subtle and unobtrusive. This poem is fundamentally concerned with acts of arrival and departure. And it's a process that we also find in a number of poems by David Wheatley. And I wanted to single out the poem on Tory Island for, for this purpose. You are sailing to and not from the mainland. All islands are mainlands. This is the world and all other corners its ends. So by contrast, man's shifting perspective in, in Rathlin is temporal and um, uncertain whether the future lies before us or behind. And Mahan contemplates not the disorientation of the journey, but rather the sort of larger feelings of fear and confusion that attend it. But I'd argue that some of the influence that we see in terms of the disorientation of sea journeys, for example, in contemporary Irish uh, poems, um, draws not just on the specifics of man's representation of such journeys, but rather on his larger approaches to shifting perspectives in his work. So it works at that at sort of precise um, individual poem level, but also at the kind of larger level of um, the, the Izuv as a whole. So in the second part, I want to look um, briefly at uh, a couple of epistolary poems. So I want to look at the idea of man as thinking through the sea or across the sea in particular ways. So in the rhythms of the sea, man locates the ebb and flow of emotion, the moments of ascetic transcendence set against detachment and uncertainty. The contrasts of sound and silence are often evidence of difficult emotional transitions. Bird sanctuary begins. Towards sleep, I came upon the place again, its muted sea and tame eddying wind. And at the close of day trip to Donegal, the slow sea washed against my head, performing its immeasurable erosions, spilling into the skull. These dreamlike encounters with the sea, um, which very often appear, and this has been remarked already, um, uh, at these cusp moments in the day, so particularly at dusk moving into night, uh, but also we see the dawn as a, a space of, of these kind of liminal um, thoughts for man. But they often appear at times of particular vulnerability and indecision. Terence Brown has noted how often man finds himself expressing love or affection across empty distances, quote, as if oceanic and cosmic spaces highlight the difficulty of human communication. So in uh, Beyond Hoth Head, we see the beginnings of the epistolary pattern that's later established more firmly in um, the Hudson letter, for example, dedicated to man's friend from his Trinity days, Jeremy Lewis. The earlier version of the poem draws more closely on specific memories of their friendship and book talk in ways that align the poem, I think, more closely with literary precursors such as Audna Magnesa's Letters from Iceland and Hugh Horton has also uh, pinpointed Auden's legacy in this poem particularly. The sea wind off the black and blue Atlantic is the conduit for language that is at once private and public addressing literary and political histories, as well as specific shared memories. The declining West on the periphery of Europe is both an acknowledgement of the unsustainable revivalist vision and an indication of the dubious value of the mediated worlds, whether American or British, that take their place. This movement towards the beyond, what is elsewhere or what is new, is enmeshed and in history and tradition though, Thought and memory mingle with experience and sensation as political commentary gives way to immediate encounters with the material world, with seaweed, industrial waste, footwear, contraceptives, all these play a part in this process of communication. Here the sea carries past and future, 
the stories of myth and of literary forebears such as Spencer and Milton, but also the networks of American military and financial power that drive towards cultural homogeneity. Later in man's career, this conjunction between aggressive capitalism and manufactured waste will constitute a more focused ecological message. But here the poem is more concerned with the synthesis of thought itself and with the predicament of the solitary observer at a time of political and personal uncertainty. And I was struck um, earlier in Fran's talk um, in that early poem, love poem, of the conjunction of the weather with the stone's bones um, that, that appears also at the, at the close of this poem. So there is that um, particular recycling of, uh, of sound patterns going on. So here the sea becomes not just um, a space of communication, but a mode of thought one which man will return to in The Sea in Winter, um, which is another epistolary poem which has been significantly streamlined between its first and uh, its final publication. Here man explicitly invokes the idea of working on the circumference as a way of connecting experience from the, from the windswept coast near Port Rush to Desmond O'Grady's Greek experience. The poem traverses both time and space, capturing the extremity of present experience and the memory of elsewhere. From the drafty bungalow in Port Stewart, man can imagine the vividly contrasting night scene of blue, ultramarine and violet. In the thinner air of the north, there is once more a sense of emptiness set against the convivial memories and saturated colors of the Greek night. This is reinforced by both the full and half rhymes and the cluster of repeated sounds. These frosty pavements are the pavements of that distant star that the cold glistening sea mist eclipses Naxos to the east. The passage of time from night to morning is accelerated, bringing the relics of last night's gale force wind and the banality of the daily bread delivery against the poetically declining stars. This is an edgy environment in every sense. There's little to distinguish the rednecks in dark cloth from the roving gangs of tartan youth and the abandoned hotels and random sounds create a feeling of nervousness and unpredictability. Yet there is hope that a strange poetry of decay can emerge from this environment. A more modest, yet perhaps a more genuine aim than the blaze of love and poetry that was uh, mentioned in Afterlives. The troubled vision of that earlier poem pers persists here though. The sickness of the state is expressed in its natural rhythms, the displeasure of the tide and its familial structures, the estrangement of man and wife. The need for self-reflection, for the acknowledgement of the heroism and cowardice involved in occupying this space reflects man's troubled state of mind during this period of return to Northern Ireland. The prospect of renewal is a conjunction of received phrases from Pound's Make It New to Basho's Narrow Road to the Deep North and the imagined perfection of peace and unity must be set aside for the imperfect reality that new day crawling up the beach. So in the final part um, of the talk, I want to turn to um, more recent poems. And these are, are, are poems that, um, uh, starting with Harbour Lights, um, although I realize that's not recent in the larger scheme of things, um, but looking at that later um, ecological uh, focus of the work. So the projections of distance that shape the epistolary poems of the sea alter radically with man's move to Kinsale and the refocusing of the work on this specific area of the coast and on the image of the harbour. The opening soundscape of the title poem of um, Harbour Lights sets the scene for this new and often subdued dynamic, the domestic near silences like the short whine of the switched off television set against the click of the boats at the quayside. So many of man's poems deal with the idea of aftermath and at times it seems that Kinsale becomes the vantage point from which those memories can be retrieved and in particular uh, from which the rest of the world can be viewed or traced. 
The skies are Indian skies, the harbour lights Chinese or Japanese. Yet the scrutiny is increasingly close. I study the visible lines of tidal flow, the spidery leaves alight with sweat and dew, doors blazing primary colours, blue and red, phone lines at angles against the piling cloud. These signs connect sea and sky, nature and human habitation, deepening man's engagement with time, which links the single human span with all its buried errors and wasted time, its dubious poems and ephemeral prose, to the larger spaces of geological time. These consider in particular the relationship between tidal flows and the materiality of the earth, the stone eroded and changed, turned to sand, deposited and reshaped. Sarah Berkeley, from a very different vantage point in California, asks something similar in the poem, What's it all for? Hour by hour, the contours of the beach can shift. Something that seems as solid as a dune is not. Nothing permanent then, is that it? And I think that last question, is that it? it? It both belongs to the nothing permanent phrase, but is that it, I think has this slight, this kind of drive towards um, apocalypse perhaps about it. It's also the context for this, of course, those of you I'm sure familiar with Berkeley's work is that turn to, um, to climate issues um, in particularly in her um, most recent collection. So for man, this shifting ground um, is figured in the subtly alternating light and shade of the shut eyes. And this is um, back to Harbour Lights again. Um, the untaken photograph and the unwritten phrase. Yet these lost opportunities for artistic expression make room for more, for different forms of renewal. In House Strand, which was already discussed this morning, and the spring tides of March signal the opening of the world, the first primrose, the first lark flight, the caravanners emerging to enjoy the coastline. But the question of how, which plays on the title of Poem and Place, raises both the mystery of creation, how the world comes into being, and those of perception. In the face of human confidence, and confidence comes up, and um, how the world, sorry, in our unbounded expertise, the power of metaphor itself diminishes. The flux of the moment cannot provide adequate meaning or even language, and even language, the definite word, um, disappears. Right now, the blowing sky, a constant flux embodied in the waves, perhaps a metaphor of relative values and conflicting facts with only wind and wave to settle for, each of them piling paradox upon paradox, neither providing any definite word, only the white foam of a libidinous sea. Just as the constant flux of the sea undoes ordered or lasting meaning, the reality of its presence and the insistence of its movement is what is most at stake at a time of accelerated climate change. The libidinous sea, which is a reminder of the Assyrian sea, in courtyards in Delft, encroaches and demands, but with a greater sense of immediacy now. The soundscape also signals the shift towards co cosmic meaning. The only sounds here are the cry of the bird, the taut hum of the telephone wire, and the music of the single star. These three elements, animate life, man-made structures, and cosmic forms, address the scale of human perception. So in a way, this is a return to North Wind, Port Rush, but with a consolatory reinterpretation. Chaos can become order, though not one we can readily comprehend. To see meaning as imminent in the world, as evidence of the creator's hand is possible, at least for a moment, but its provisional nature allows uncertainty to prevail. The vista of order within chaos is matched by increasing attention to forms of bodily experience in these late poems. In contrast to the anxieties of late Yeats, this work embraces the potential for continued intensity of feeling. The final impulse of Harbour Lights is towards immersion, swimming with a loved one from white strands, the sea loud in our veins. Whether this urge to find the right place, 
find it and live forever can be fulfilled. The sea has acquired a womb-like quality. The warm uterine uh, rinse experienced in a swim in County Wicklow. Despite this impression, it is Montale's perpetual flow of vital energy which animates that poem. The dazzling heart racing experience registers the tug of origins so that the speaker momentarily occupies past, present and future in the same moment. This, this process of, of immersion in cold water um, produces this a gasp of expression and exhalation as the body joins the textures of seaweed and foam, the seething energies of the sea, so different from the mildness of lake and river. Among pebbles, a white conch, worn by the suck and crunch, a sandy skull as old as the centuries, in cold and solitude reclines, where the moon magnet shines. But today you swirl and spin in seawater, as if creatures of salt and slime and naked under the sun, life were a waking dream, and this the only life. I want to contrast this briefly um, with a poem by Justin Quinn called Offshore, which is again a, a very um, sensory and um, immediate representation of a sea swim as a form of connection, where the singularity of uh, diving into freezing water is balanced by the intimacy and shared perspective of the swim. Quinn extends the process beyond that intensity of immersion to include the view towards land. The headland bears a blur, the usual algebra of distance and perspective confounded by light mist and the lack of our corrective lenses. But we're still amazed by everything since our dive into this other world, the light, the land and sky, these rocks and stunning cold, the brimming sea, chin high its glimmer, us upheld. I think one of the strongest impressions of this poem is that sense of the body sustained in water, in an element that both surprises and sustains. And the effect may be to understand the human to be supported within the natural world, which um, is a significant realization if we counter it with man's um, later, more pessimistic view um, of the state of the world facing climate change, and in particular of the differentiation between the experience of the human in a privileged Western environment um, and elsewhere um, in the global South, for example. The endless tidal flows that shape man's work draw a wider range of knowledge towards the poet's space of seclusion in Kinsale. As Harbour Lights reflects, meaning is derived both from the tiniest pebble and from the interconnected rhythms of global activity. Because everything is water, the world a wave, whole populations quietly on the move. The issues of scale, the issue of scale rather, connects the sensations of the individual with global patterns of human behavior. The envir environmental impact lies not with the actions of the individual, but with the cumulative effect of those repeated actions. And for this reason, the natural world can appear individually to offer consolation, despite our knowledge of the threats to species and habitats. So in man's late work, the ecological message, if we can call it that, is finely balanced between these states of recognition and solace. Insomnia moves towards the memory of a migrant woman and her imagined landscape. In the stricken distance, perhaps, a shipyard, chimneys, power plants, gasometers, oil refineries. Before that, the speaker bears witness to Ireland's own extractivism, watching the activity of trawlers in the darkness and the helicopters that drop to the decks of gas rings miles offshore. The complex relationship between what is seen and what is known um, is interrogated by Alva Darcy in her 2018 volume, Insistence, which also engages with climate crisis in, an ex in a sustained way. The poem Jellyfish links the fate of the natural world with that of the migrant child, and it's an extremely striking poem. Uh, and that connection only becomes fully clear at the very end of the poem. But, but earlier in the poem, 
um, there is this contemplation of the fact of its own creation and of the poem's entry into an intertextual world of word and image. You'll steal from other poets the haystack and roof-leveling wind, the sea wind, the sea's murderous innocence, where slugs with their slime trails are porous as mirrors, where ice far away, but you can't help knowing about it, calves and crashes. And that, that line, or two lines almost, far away, but you can't help knowing about it, is, is one that's repeated again and again from that point on in the poem. And so it very much deals with that sense of our awareness of um, the fate of the world in that larger global sense. And uh, we can't help knowing about it. But the question is, can we um, take action in relation to it? Can we fully understand it um, mm -hmm. in, in the most internalized sense? Our exposure to human suffering and environmental depletion is mediated by text and images, as um, Darcy um, you know, displays or interrogates really in this, in this poem. And these are experienced both singularly and collectively. They draw attention to the relationship between distance and proximity, which is heightened by the treatment of material objects in man's work, and in particular by the repeated engagement with waste much of it seaborne, as Hugh Houghton's illuminating essay on, on rubbish has shown. The creation of order produces waste, and the textual parallels to this process suggest that the continual alteration of poems, both before and after publication, leave in their wake the excise lines and stanzas, or even entire poems, that bear an uneasy relation to the monumental poems 1961 to 2020 that we've been discussing intermittently today. Conversely, it might be argued that the significant growth in man's output, I think it's really striking to see the sheer volume of work published since the um, 2005 publication of Harbour Lights, mirrors the excess that he observes in the late capitalist world. At first, this proliferation of objects tends to be associated with urban modernity. So uh, as we know, it has this very long history in, in man's work and, and with the inhospitable character of that environment. But in the end, the speaker has tired of, quote, the whir and blur of cities. You start to choke on signage, carbon monoxide, the hard look. Waste moves on water, as Jonathan Swift's description of a city shower so amply demonstrated, and man's corresponding, the thunder shower, fuses the soundscape of rain with the excess of city existence. Soon the whispering roar is a recital, jostling rain crowds, clamorous and vital, struggle in, struggle in runnels through the afternoon. After a storm presents this extremity of weather in very specific uh, ways related to climate change. Global warming, of course, but more like war, as if dam-busting bombers had been here. Detritus of the years, carpet and car, computers and a wide range of expensive gadgetry went spinning down the river with furniture and linen, crockery shoes and clothes until it finally gave over. The relationship between the mobility of discarded objects and their impact on marine environments is linked to our difficulty in reaching a comprehensive understanding of the life of the sea, a difficulty that attends both our knowledge of the ocean and the impact of late industrial capitalism on it, as Stacey Alamo has argued. She writes, the persistent and convenient conception of the ocean as so vast and powerful that anything dumped into it will be dispersed into oblivion, makes it particularly difficult to capture, map and publicize the flow of toxins across the terrestrial, oceanic and human habitats. And the other thing I think that makes difficult is um, bringing into alignment the use of the image of the ocean in a, a fully metaphorical sense with the reality of the ocean as this repository for our waste. Though climate change and unsustainable weather patterns are the focus of man's late work, we are reminded of the larger moral significance of the return of what is cast away. The early poem after the Titanic features Bruce Ismay's retreat to obscurity as a refusal to publicly accept his culpability in the fate of the ship uh, that cost, that sorry, the, the night his costly life went thundering down in a pandemonium 
of prams, pianos, sideboards, winches, boilers bursting and shredded ragtime. The lives of the lost or perhaps even the saved return to him in the form of broken toys and hat boxes cast up on the tide. By extension, the speaker in Sinead Morrissey's The Coal Jetty situates this process in the larger context of, Mar of Belfast's maritime and industrial identity. Twice a day, the sea slides out as far as it can go and the shore coughs up its crockery, rocks, muscle banks, beach glass, the horizontal chimney stacks of sewer pipes, crab shells, bike spokes, as though a floating house fell out of the clouds as it passed the city limits. This conjunction of sea life, city infrastructure and discarded manufactured objects shapes the rhythm of withdrawing lines and speaks not only to man's reading of the material past, and which is obviously, I think, in the back of Morrissey's mind there, but also to our own networks of the historical and the familial, and um, that, that shape uh, parallax the volume from which this poem is taken in both verbal and visual ways. The return of man's own past comes in textual form. The poem Data remarks, I'm noticing once again the singular things I noticed as a boy, reprising and extending his earlier incarnation as a strange child with a taste for verse and ensuring um, that these things are in a sense no longer singular since they are um, recalled. The hidden springs, the sound of silence, nap of tablecloths, sea taste of iodine, sense of clothes, raw grain of wood, a scrambling interface of the ebbing tide, an incoming tide race. This scrambling interface overlies the tide, overlays the tideline in nature with the language of technology, but the energies of ebb and flow of withdrawal and continuance are, are, are intensified. This language is also unusual for its wider sensory attention. The auditory no longer do dominates. Smell, taste and touch emerge as vital to a fuller reclamation of the past. There are many springs in man's work of both seasonal and geological varieties, but only in his later work could they be described as hidden, as in another cold spring where the water bursts from the undergrowth in defiance of meteorological prediction, freezing cold, quote, undoctored, undefiled, lime-filtered, crystalline. This final turn to water as a purifying and renewing medium does not remove its power to inundate, but sees both elements as coexisting, just as the early ironies exist within the consoling final work in the continuous flow of its evolving forms. Thank you very much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.